Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 109, and today we are discussing Ursula K. Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea. And with me today is A Wizard of Brooklyn, Hoy. I uh, will not reveal my true name, but fortunately, Jeff has already done it. (laughs) (laughs) And today, joining us is performer and author of Swords Point, The Privilege of the Sword, Thomas the Rhymer, co-author of The Fall of the Kings with Delia Sherman, and author of five choose-your-own-adventure game books, Ellen Kushner. Ellen, thanks for being on the show today. I am delighted to be asked. Thank you so much. We are absolutely thrilled to have you here. Oh, and I could say I am in Manhattan. Amazing. Because wizards can cross water. (laughs) (laughs) So when we first started this podcast, Hoy and I were both living in New York. I now live in Cleveland, which I understand you grew up in. Yes. Yes, I'm in Lakewood. Oh, a fine town, quite near the lake. <laughs> and of course, you spent uh, many, many years in the Boston area, which is where I'm from originally. So. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Well, yeah. here we are in a perfect triangle. There we go. <laughs> it's all coming together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Ellen, first, I want to ask you, what is your experience with, with role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games? Do you have much experience with this? So here's the sad thing. I have zero experience with it. And I made it up for myself before it was a thing. (laughs) Tell me more. I mean, basically, I invented the LARP when I was in my (laughs) 20s working in publishing in New York. And it was just when Dungeons and Dragons were coming out. And Mm -hmm. that that was for kids. And it had dice. And we invented this entire... in where people from different paths met, like people from fantasy novels that we made up and live role played it. And I had, and at the time, I think also D&D was very, you know, kind of numbers and it was like a giant crap game with dragons. So it didn't (laughs) particularly interest me. And, you know, obviously as it, as it grew and as other gaming games grew, I know I would have just found my heart in them if I had been younger, but alas, it is too late for me to go to Gaming Neverland. That said, I was a guest at LuxCon in Luxembourg in Europe a couple of years ago, and they delighted in taking my role-playing virginity and uh, getting me to play, was it like legit D&D? Or I don't know, it had dice and, and we had choices to make. Then it was fun. It was funner than I thought. And because I wasn't an experienced gamer, I kept doing unexpected things. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I would like to say winning. (laughs) (laughs) That's why gamers who don't have experience are my favorite gamers, because they're not so penned in by what they what they think they're allowed to do or not. Mm-hmm. I love that. What kind of mindset were you taking when you wrote the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books? Because you wrote five of those, right? Well, I was in hell because and I was <laughs> trying to work on my plotting, um, my plotting abilities. So those were, I wrote those very early on. I actually wrote those kind of to support my eating and breathing habit while I was <laughs> working on Swords Point and Thomas the Rhymer, which were my first two novels. And I thought it would be fun, but... 
man, it was hard because you had mm. to have different endings and you actually, it was a, an official thing. You had to have one third good endings, one third bad endings, and one third neutral endings. Mm. And I just used colored paper clips all over the place and pieces of paper. And it was really hard. And I really wish I had been more clever about it, but I wasn't. And then for my second one, people showed me how to do a like a timeline. Um, so, I mean, I'm just not the most linear person on God's green earth. So I, but I knew that they were games. And they used to have me come out to schools and people would go like, look, you know, in, the, in fact, in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, I went to one. And it was this huge deal that this author was visiting their school. And I wanted to say to them, you, you kids know, these aren't really books, they're games. <laughs> but I didn't want to bite the hand that flew me, so I did not say that. Yeah, in the 80s, I was a um, devourer of those books. And to me, they were definitely books. They were literature to me. <laughs> but you also mentioned, I mean, it seems to be a common thread since you talked about you were doing shared worlds and sort of proto-LARPing. And you've since opened up the uh, Swords Point Tremontaine world as a shared world. And yep. also you uh, co-edited the revival of the Borderlands series, which is also a shared world, right? So you have a lot of experience with shared worlds and, and sort of communal storytelling. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, I, yeah. and I love it. Mm-hmm. And uh, people for a while were trying to do Borderland gaming. This is a, a world on the border between Elfland and the human lands that Terry Windling invented and had us all essentially play with her. And... Um, then the next generation of people like Holly Black turned out to have been hugely influenced by it. And so we said, we'll come play in our world and we'll do a new anthology of all the people. Cory Doctorow was another one. We were like Mm -hmm. just picking people who were a big deal fantasy and science fiction writers who turned out to be, you know, one of the 200 people who had actually read and bought those books back in the 80s. (laughs) So um, it's fun to me. I love collaboration. I do a lot of collaborating. And this is pre-Shadowrun, Jeff. I had the first two books in the the day, back in the day as well. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So, Ellen, what is your history with reading speculative fiction? You know, I just went seamlessly from fairy tales to C.S. Lewis to actually, I junior i was reading fantasy like anything with magic in it was great but in junior high this the other group of weirdos wouldn't be friends with me unless i read science fiction so i thought okay you know anything not to be alone on a friday night so i started reading you know arthur c clark and whatever else was around and um actually samuel r delaney huge huge influence on me and um i just never stopped And for our listeners who are looking for good um, recommendations for books that they can read to inspire their gaming, what would you recommend? I need to give a shout out to the woman who saw me through my first Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it was, you know, dice rolling role playing game, who is a friend of mine who lives in Austin, Texas, and her name is Stina Light, but it's spelled L-E-I-G-H-T. And she is a fabulous writer whose latest book, Persephone Station, is like a feminist space opera. And her books before that were flintlock fantasy. Uh, You know, we've all left the medieval era of Tolkien behind, and hers were set in a kind of an imagined America uh, with magic. So I, Stina, this turns out to be this huge gamer who told me all these great gaming stories. And then she kind of helped me out and did funny voices when I was doing my first... Oh, because my first game, of course, ever was on the program at this con, LuxCon, and I had to do it in front of an audience. 
Uh, it wasn't just me. I mean, there, there were several other people involved too, but I was really only worried about me. So Stina was fabulous. And I think that as a person who really deeply understands gaming, I suspect that you could pull a lot of really great stuff from Persephone Station and her other, other novels. Very cool. Thank you. And I meant to ask this earlier. What was your character that you were playing? Oh, in my original, like, we called it the Silver Swan Inn. And because the idea was that people could then turn up from all different places and there didn't have to be one world that we all lived in. Mm-hmm. And I I was a, a sort of a roguish person. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I love it. And Ellen, I don't, I mean, this might be out of scope, but I'm really kind of curious about the Endicott Studio. And um, you, you were sort of... Uh, the salon mistress in, in a way for, for that, for number of sessions when that was happening in the early days or. No, that wasn't me. That was Terry, okay. Terry Windling, my best friend and frequent creative collaborator. Mm-hmm. She is a force of nature and a, of an inspiring person as well as an inspired person who makes her own art. A lot of us owe a lot to her and she's kind of continuing to create community. Her, her, her big thing is, is creating community wherever she lives and also online and uh, the Border Town books were very much about teenage runaways finding each other and creating community. And now she's doing it online. It's like she can't help herself. She has a wonderful blog called Myth and Moor. Mm-hmm. And people just live in that, that world with her. It's not right. an invented world. It's just the world of how she sees things. Right. And she's also pretty active on Twitter. Terry with an I, Terry Windling. Right. She's she's really something. And, I was looking um, at the membership and it's like a just utter murderer's row of sort of, you know, fantasy and mythic uh, creators, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. She brings us all together. I do amazing. too, but but not in the formal way that she does. Basically, anybody you know, I will either turn out to know or to have introduced them to this other person that they know. It's, that's, that's my gift, kind of. That's, that's, I'm a connector, but she's the one who sort of stays still at the center of things. I love that. That is amazing. So unfortunately, I have a really boring edition of the book that I'm working with this time around. I've got the 2012 Clarion Books ebook. It's got that Dominic Harmon cover that we've all seen where it's like the eagle or maybe it's a sparrowhawk because that's his name, just like staring angrily at us as we're looking at the cover. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's it's a it's a very well done piece of art, but it, it isn't very evocative of the story in my mind. Uh, but Hoy, which edition are you working with? Um, partially with the ebook, but also with ah Charles Vess. Oh mm, my God! Yes, indeed. Um, but I have I to read him. the ebook because otherwise this would fall on my head and crush me to death. So <laughs> this is the illustrated one, uh, the entire Earthsea series, and I believe it's the one that uh, she. Ursula K. Le Guin worked directly with Charles Vest to make sure that the illustrations were all correct, that, you know, Ged cool. was a person of, you know, red, brown skin, and Vetch was, you know, properly black, and all the other characters were correctly portrayed. So Charles does a fantastic um, talk with, with images of how he did that work with Ursula. He tells great stories, and apparently creating dragons that look the way she thought they should uh, was it was a real struggle, and it was really interesting to hear him talk about that. Yeah, they're like incredibly sinuous, and um, and he's a member of the, the studio as too, as well. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. yeah. So that's amazing. Yes. And Ellen, which version are you working with? Well, I, I have so many because this is one of my favorite books in all the world. Huge, huge formative book for me. But I most recently treated myself to the Folio Society Fancy Schmancy edition um, of. The A Wizard of Earthsea, it just takes my breath away. And uh, it's got an introduction by David Mitchell, 
And it's illustrated by a guy I've never heard of, David Lupton. But to me, he just captures the rawness and the darkness of it. I just love it. Right, right. And again, I think she said specifically that he really captured that feeling of uh, salt and sea that mm. a lot of the other books didn't uh, capture. So, I, I don't know if we have time for me to tell you my Ursula Le Guin cover story. Please um, do. So her books were done as these beautiful children's book editions. Uh, and it turned out like I fell hard for my college boyfriend because his aunt was the cover illustrator of the first book, which just gave him this incredible glamour. But the paperbacks were just miserable. And I think the first paperback which was done as an adult fantasy with ace books had like a pentacle on the cover and, you know, like a monster. And my first job out of college was at Ace Books, and I went through the files, and I found Ursula Le Guin's letters to Ace going, this cover is unspeakable. You cannot put <laughs> this book out with this cover. She's, I remember her saying, because the people who will like this book will be turned off by the cover, and the people who want you know, a cover with monsters and pentagrams and things like that will hate the book. And I do have to tell you that every author who has ever lived has basically said the same thing about their cover illustrations, except me, because I've been really lucky. But anyway, I loved seeing that, you know, in Le Guin's hand, and uh, she was so right. And so instead, they ended up putting it out with a um, the, the first Ace paperback edition. Um, no, I tell a lie. It was another one of her books that had the Dylan covers, the fabulous Leo and Diane Dylan covers. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, and maybe they just put out the crap Ursi cover. Maybe mm. they didn't. I don't remember, but I remember seeing the cover flat for what they were going to put out. And yeah, no, 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 bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And hoy, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day for this episode? It's a, it's a very simple word. Mur. Mur. It's a white-breasted seabird, an auk. And so uh, she used such plain language, but very beautiful. And every once in a while, she's like, oh, this is a creature that we never see. And it's, it's just you know, it's, it's, it's just really gets into the, the essence of that. Again, the salt, the sea, the sky, the stone. It's so, it's so uh, grounded, this book, even though it's so fantastic. So I thought it was a good, simple word. How do you spell it? M-U-R-R-E. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I like it. There you go. All right. So we are now heading on over to the library to chat about A Wizard of Earthsea. So, Ellen, what do you think of A Wizard of Earthsea? <laughs> I, I just think it is one of the most beautiful books ever written. And, you know, it's become sort of part of my DNA. So I'm not sure I even think anything. I think I just feel it in my bones. Mm -hmm. That said, rereading it recently, I had some shocks, both good and bad. But what do I think of it? I think it's glorious. And it's interesting because it was written in that first book backwash from Tolkien, where, you know, Tolkien hit uh, like an atom bomb, Lord of the Rings, everybody was reading it. If you were cool, sort of a cool, weird kid, you were reading Lord of the Rings. And um, all the college kids were reading it. And uh, it had a really college -y message that people pulled from it. But it was also huge, you know, it was symphonic. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, my friends and I were like all trying to write in Tanguar and wear gray cloaks and do all that stuff. But it was an enormous world and a lot of made up stuff that was, you know, backed by scholarship. And it was heroic, vastly heroic. And a friend of mine got Wizard of Earthsea out of the library and uh, I took it from her to read. And it just went through me. 
And I had this horrible realization, which was that I liked it better than Tolkien. Mm. And I felt like a complete traitor, like a complete like nerd race traitor. <laughs> Why did I like it better? Why do I continue to like it better? It's elegant, it's exquisite, it's very personal. Um, even though the world is a huge world, and I, of course, imagined many adventures for myself in that world. But they were very personal, a little more character-driven, maybe. And also just the beauty of the language. I mean, I'll, I'll go out and fight anybody who says that Tolkien's language isn't beautiful. But Le Guin's is so simple and pure and so musical. Every time I read it, I, I'm just... I, it just catch my breath at the at the exquisite perfection of it. And you were, I guess, what in your late teens or in college already when you had started reading this book, or or is this teens, uh, teens, early yeah, teens, yeah. yeah, right, right. So this, you were exactly the right target audience because this was considered her first, you know, teen. Why, you know, this is, we were saying this before YA existed as a category, but this this is sort of proto YA in a way, but without sort of that, it's it's high stakes, but it's not angsty, sort of like the, today's YA in a way. I feel. Yeah. It's about really being a teen, which is that you're a complete asshole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what's also interesting is it also explores the idea of like things that we do when we're young, dumb, and impulsive have lasting impact. You know, like looking at the shadow. When I was reading this book, I was like, what is the shadow? Like, what is what is the metaphor behind it? Because I feel like there's there's something more going on here. And I was thinking of things like, Unintended pregnancies, uh, STIs. Uh, you you get drunk and you you hit somebody, and now there's like a lifelong. You, you now have to live with that for the rest of your life. It's like it's this thing that this that that our main character did, uh, Ged. You know he 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 opened the 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 pathways to the underworld and brought this thing out, but not because he had to. He was doing it to show off. He was doing it because he wanted to impress people with the powers he had, and it went really poorly for him. Mm-hmm. I think it's even just the casual cruelties we indulge in as a teenager sometimes, you know, just mm-hmm. a cutting remark that, you know, because we don't feel good and we put it on other people. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you one thing I caught rereading it as an adult. So so when you're a, a kid, you know, he meets this guy Jasper, who's a nobleman's son, and immediately decides that he hates him and he hates him back. And is just a complete pig to him because he's so afraid that Jasper's going to make fun of him for not being high class. And yeah. I, I took that. I was right there with him. Like, yes, what, a, what an asshole. And then mm-hmm. I reread it as an adult. And Le Guin gives you plenty of indication that Jasper's doing his best to be friendly. It's just that Ged doesn't have the secret decoder ring. You know, he's so caught up in his own way of looking at the world and at his own culture that he doesn't recognize it. And uh, Jasper's not actually bad. Jasper becomes really annoyed with him eventually and becomes mm-hmm. malicious. But he's not actually malicious at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And even with, with the Jasper character, even when things do start to like, kind of go in a darker direction for Jasper, it still feels very relatable from both, from both perspectives. Because from Jasper's side, too, also here comes in this young wizard who has no education and can already do things quite well. And it seems like Jasper's a little intimidated by that. And he's trying to like make his, um, he, one of the things he seems to be trying to do is trying to push down, uh, get a little bit so that he can still kind of show like, Hey, like I'm, a, I'm, I'm still top dog here. You know, I'm still the best wizard in town where he knows that like 
this kid is going to catch up to him and surpass him. But until that happens, he's going to show him that currently he's the one who's the better magician. Well, what are some of the other things that you picked up? You mentioned that was one of maybe one of the dark things that you picked up on that you or the bad things that you picked up on and on your rereading. Um, so this speak. is mortifying um, because I tend to believe in reading each book through its own values. Um, and I even felt that when Le Guin, after three books, kind of did a feminist revision with the ensuing books, I felt like she was kind of not being honest. Um, I've revised that opinion since. But I felt like she was kind of, you know, recanting like Galileo, uh, you know, her bad feminism. And yet I hadn't read the book for years. And I sat down and read it a few years ago and was really put off mm. by how, like, men are good. Women are kind of bad. <laughs> and women's magic is weak and yeah. it's evil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I... I grew up at the tail end of the world that Le Guin was in, and it was a world in which most books were about men and men were the heroes. And if Mm -hmm. you wanted, it's not that you felt you had to do it to impress other people because you'd really rather be writing about women. It's that books were about men. And if you wrote books, they were about men. And, you know, that was fine because, of course, as an imaginative person, you could become anybody you wanted to in your own brain. So... I know, and I, I got into real trouble with people like Robin McKinley on panels talking about this. Um, I just, I didn't resent it. I was just willing to go wherever writing took me. But as a writer, especially at the beginning, you're writing books, your, your books are going to be like the books you read mm. um, in some way. And so I, I earnestly believe that that's what happened with Le Guin. And um, I, to some extent with me, but reading it now, it was really horrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it, it says a lot that she would re-examine that, right? Especially one of her best beloved works, right? For her later, the later half of the series to say, okay, well, you know, this is where I was at then, and this is where I'm at now. Not not all authors would do that and, and look at it. And I don't know that she's, I have to read Tahanu again to see if it's a complete repudiation or just saying that there's another layer to this world, that this is a perception that Ged and all these male, you know, male-centric characters perceive women's magic, but it's been there all along. Right, because they talk about how magic is different on every island. It's different on the outer reaches of the archipelago. So there's always been room for that to exist. It's just that they've, they've never seen it. Least, you know. I'll tell you, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the things that it's it, not only is it, you know, great hearted of her and, and great minded of her to have done that, but it's something you can do when you have a series. Like yeah. I'm still doing that with my stuff. You know, Swords Point has a lot of interconnected novels, and I took a giant leap forward when I worked on the Tremontaine series, which was a collaborative series uh, set in my world with writers of color and younger writers who were just as we were to Le Guin, you know, were to me, kind of Ellen, we're, we're looking at things differently now. And mm-hmm. uh, they put all kinds of stuff in there that I had to learn to be comfortable with and that now I am and I'm using it in my current book. And similarly, I had, I, so I've not read much Ursula K. Le Guin. Prior to this, the only thing that I've read is The Dispossessed, which Mm. was phenomenal. I absolutely loved that. But reading The Dispossessed and then reading this, I was very surprised because The Dispossessed, even even for its time, is so groundbreaking and so glass glass ceiling shattering. And I was expecting that I was going to read this book and experience the same thing. And I didn't. 
I didn't get that at all. And that was very surprising to me. Well, she did write Dispossessed later, but I think before this came, I would say, arguably her, her most influential book, um, which is The Left Hand of Darkness, which was radical, radical, radical. But I think she was working in a different vein for this. She'd been asked to write a children's book. And now in those days, children's book, as you say, wasn't YA. And it wasn't even books for little kids. It was just fantasy with a young protagonist. But there were just certain aesthetics to it. And I think she was sort of going for that. Mm -hmm. And then looking at the character of Ged, you know, we start with this with this young impulsive um, adolescent who ends up getting paired up with Ojayan and Ojayan is silent and stoic and keeps his, keeps his secrets close at hand and really wants uh, for Ged to learn to appreciate silence and stillness and to, and to learn more magic as he gets older and eventually gets like, nah, I'm getting out of here and I'm going to wizard school. And, and Ursula K. Le Guin presents that without any judgment. Like that's, that's the path that he's on. And Ojayan also fully accepts it. But by the end of the novel, Ged is very similar to Ojayan and his, his character has changed a lot. There is a massive character arc through the course of this book. I'm curious, did the two of you find this character arc believable? Did it seem natural or did it feel forced to you? I think it was absolutely necessary. And when you're a kid, you don't realize it only takes place in sort of like three years chronological time, which is a lot. I mean, he develops to become like the maturity of a 30-year-old or something like that. But for a kid, it's fine. You know, someone who's 19 is like, when when you're 14, someone who's 19 is like an adult. Mm Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think it had to happen. But Ellen, I would love to but hear I what you I also say. think that it works really well in the, within the rules of the world. Mm-hmm. That the only way that he can go forward is by becoming a greater wizard. And being a greater wizard means doing less. He kind of has that rammed down his throat because when he did more, you know, he was practically destroyed. But interestingly enough, right before we got together, I found this little nugget that was a throwaway. I didn't even remember it, but it's the master summoner says, uh, you thought as a boy that a mage is one who can do anything. So I thought once, so did we all. And the truth is, here it comes, the truth is that as a man's real power grows and his knowledge widens, ever the way he can follow grows narrower until at last he chooses nothing, but does only and wholly what he must do. That's the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I was speculating that because uh, uh, Le Guin is from Northern California, I believe, right, and born and bred, that she must have been exposed to sort of uh, strains of sort of like Buddhist thought and stuff like that that hadn't quite reached the East Coast by, by you know the you know the late sixties. And so she there's was sort of like embedded in all the other stuff that was going on, whether or not she actively you know oh she did subscribed yeah. to it, but I no, think it's that, a Taoist book basically, yeah. yeah. And so uh, that was really uh, interesting. And people were, you know, trying to figure out like what kind of strains that she was drawing upon. And I, I said, there definitely has to be some Eastern thought in there, even if it's not one-to-one correlation. Yeah. No, I, and to me, this is also, I think, the really exciting thing about it and why I was so thrilled with it is that particularly in that era, most great fantasists were writing out of a religious um, background. 
Mm, you know, the yep. whole good versus evil thing. Uh, Tolkien was a tremendously uh, passionate Catholic. And uh, C.S. Lewis in the Narnia books was a tremendously passionate Anglican. But there's real passion in religion. And they fueled uh, everybody's stuff. And as a result, you know, you've got the, the you know, great good triumphing over evil thing of Tolkien, which is, you know, extremely uh, sexy and appealing. But then you move over to Le Guin and suddenly it's not there at all. Mm -hmm. And she's offering you a completely different magic system that yeah. is a lot more both spiritual and cerebral. You know, the, the notion of Ged being up in that tower memorizing the names of everything in the world still fills me with horror. Um, so she's really offering a completely different magic system. And it's very clear that it's real. It's very clear that it works. And if you are of a certain temperament, it's very desirable. So I love that you're bringing up the magic system because this feels like this is a great opportunity to segue into kind of a gaming and or world building conversation. So looking at the magic system. So especially when it comes to gamifying something, especially a magic system, we have to know what are the limits? Can you just be casting spells left and right? Um, and with Dungeons and Dragons, you know, Gary Gygax ended up going with his Jack Vance, Eyes of the Overworld style, uh, style casting, where you look at a book, you memorize this rune, it appears in your head, and then once you cast it, it's gone. And that makes a lot of sense from a gaming perspective because it doesn't require a lot of a lot of thought, really. It's a, it's a good way of you get it, you spend it. You get it, you spend it. But with this, we see that Ged, if he overspends his power, kind of goes into a state of catatonia. catatonia. Um, but otherwise, it seems like the limitations of the magic are a little bit more esoteric. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's almost like the limitations come beforehand, mm -hmm. that you can't do it until you can do it really well, until you have full mastery. You just can't do it. And then once yeah. you have mastery, unless you make really serious mistakes, you're great. And, and I think the thing that confuses the outside world is why won't you do it? Why won't you do it? You know, look, there's a storm. We need you to calm the storm. And you're explaining, well, I can't because then it will ruin the winds and the harvest will be bad. Mm -hmm. You can see things other people can't see. How do you gamify that? Mm. Yeah, it's tricky. And I'm glad you brought up the rain because I was I specifically brought I highlighted this one section where um, it says rain on Roke may be drought in Oskil, he said, and a calm in the East Reach may be storm and ruin in the West, unless you know what you are about. Mm -hmm. I mean, this whole thing is concerned with essences, right? The, uh, as exemplified by learning the true name of not just rock in general, but this rock, that rock, that bird. So he can get a herd of goats to do everything because that's collectively, it's a herd of goats. But any individual goat, he has to know that goat's secret name, true name, just get that goat to do anything more than, you know, move along with the herd of goats, right? Um, in terms of gamifying it, I think it's not, um, it's, it's thinking about it in terms of like, it's not a spell. It's a, a knowledge of a process and a procedure and a desired result. Right. And so it's more like, um, the game mage, Jeff, maybe. Mm. than traditional D&D. &D. It's, not, it's not mechanical. It's not if A, then B, right? But the limits are, are, 
almost endless because he fights off the dragon, like five dragons, like the little dragons, right? And he's only, again, 17, 18, 19, right? But he won't repair, you know. <laughs> he can't bring back uh, the the boatman's son because that would be in violation of the essence and the rules of the world, right? The spirit has to go. Yeah. Right? He can... So, Ellen, uh, when you are incorporating fantastic elements into your world building, do you tend to want to know the rules of how these things fully work before you're going to incorporate them into your world building? Or is it a little, do you wear, do you wear that garment a little more loosely and say, I'll figure that out if and when I need to? Yeah, you know, I almost do the opposite, which is I know what I want it to be. I know what I want it to feel like. And then I have to, you know, kind of back create a situation in which those things will be true. <laughs> and I, I think that uh, so far I've only read Swordpoint of yours and a couple of your short stories, but a lot of it is sort of very contingent on sort of these unspoken rules that people are sort of almost feeling their way around. Like they sort of intuitively know that they have to follow these rules, but they don't exactly know why in some cases. And that they just, you know, it's it's what my wife calls a high context society that you don't even question it. It's just, well, that's the way it is. You know, why would you do anything different? Uh, you know, it's be, be like, I don't know, being a European and saying, well, of course, we don't eat with our hands. You know, we use implements. What, what are you? What are you? Why? How could anyone? You know, and of course, it's completely a construct. So I think yeah. the same thing is true of the world that I've invented. I also tend to not know much more than my characters know. I sort of follow them around and see what they see and know what they know. You know, over the years since I've done more work with that world, I, that's expanded a little bit. But it turns out Le Guin did the same thing. There's a mm -hmm. famous, um, I guess, a piece about her, an interview with her, and uh, it's got rush wash tea in it. And she says she just kind of invents things as she needs them, when mm -hmm. she needs them. And she says, for instance, the women of, you know, some island, when they're taking a break from their, their housework, they drink rush wash tea. Now, I did not know that before I began that sentence, but now I do. <laughs> That's I the kind that. of total immersion fantasy and invention that I cherish. I like to read it. I like to write mm -hmm. it. And it kind of got sidelined a little bit as gaming became more and more prevalent. Yeah, I feel like a lot of fiction now is very top down in terms of the world building. And I think that's related to how gaming has also created like, oh, we have to know how all this everything operates in order to be able to move your characters through this world. Right. And and, and fiction for better or worse has sort of sort of cross pollinated with gaming in some regards. And that's it's kind of left the sort of weird, sort of more intuitive storytelling sort of has been left behind as you're kind of alluding to it's you know what though it's gaming and it was letting the scientists play in our sandbox um larry niven who was a very hard science science fiction writer wrote a fantasy uh, you know in the late 70s i guess i'm blanking on the name of it uh i think i kind of forgot when, it on when purpose, the magic but goes he, away what when the magic goes away that was there one before that though that might have been the sequel i'm not sure it might have been boy you're good for a, for a kid, you know a lot. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to buy you a coffee. So uh, anyway, <laughs> it was, yeah, no, I think Magic Went Away was the second one or it was the short story and then he did in the novel. But anyway, he, he kind of did, took science brain and put it on magic. And, you know, it was kind of a neat novelty trick, but people with science brain kind of liked it. And uh, people were copying that as well as gaming at the same time. It was a double whammy. 
what this is reminding me of is another section that I highlighted where it said, it may seem strange that on an island 50 miles wide, in a village under cliffs that stare out forever on the sea, a child may grow to manhood, never having stepped in a boat or dipped his finger in salt water. But so it is. So right there, Ursula K. Le Guin is saying that the characters in this world don't even know what's what what's out what what's beyond where they are right now and i love that that's also kind of her world building style too where she's like i don't know what's what's on this next island but i'm going to find out when my pen or my typewriter or my keyboard take me there or my character find- <laughs> yes yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> and i think that is a really valuable lesson for people who want to write fiction or people who want to um, run fantasy RPGs or really kind of any RPG, I think a lot of people get really stuck in their head thinking that they have to know exactly how everything works before they just like get the pen to the paper. And it's like, if you let it flow out of you, then you can start to, you, you can, you can go on the process where you and the characters discover these things together. Yeah. I, I, when I teach, I call that riding the wild ride. And, and I think magic is particularly um, set up for you to ride the wild ride. You know, as, as my wife sometimes says about my first drafts, you have an amazing subconscious. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to trust it. And it will, in fact, work everything out for you. But you have mm-hmm. to trust it mm-hmm. and let it be a little wild. And one of the things I'm always looking for is things that I want to steal from this from my world building. And going back to the thing that I highlighted there... I thought it was really neat that in Earthsea, you go to these different islands and people don't know life outside this island and how they talk about how like even just the next island over is practically myth to them. However, there is another class of people. There are the people who are on these boats who are going from island to island who do know these things. And the thing that they have is knowledge. And also when talking about the magic system, Ursula K. Le Guin talks about how need is not enough you also need knowledge. So knowledge is a really powerful thing in Earthsea. And it's something that really sets apart the people who stay in their village and do their farming and their blacksmithing or whatever it is they're doing locally versus kind of the wizards and the oddball adventurers who are going out into the world, going from island to island. But even then, she's already alluding to different kinds of knowledge, right? There's the that knowledge, but then there's the, the deep knowledge of the thing that you do. Like Ojeon may have never left. Well, maybe he went to wizard school, but other than that, he spent all his time on gone, right? He, but he knows from the shore to the top of the mountain, right? And everything yeah. in between. And that's maybe 25 miles, right? But he knows every single rock, every single leaf, every single tree, right? Or, um, I mean, uh, one of my favorite characters is Vetch's sister. I think people are just, you know, she's just such a, a beautiful pure character she just knows these things that that get kind of intellectually maybe kind of know but she can sort of penetrate to the matter and then just say with humor it's like well you're gonna wish you had that bun or you know a cake (laughs) i often think of that (laughs) (laughs) so i think that there is both those knowledge so but but the knowledge you're talking about is perfect for the role-playing game that's the adventurer's knowledge right Mm -hmm. the other knowledge is the the non-player character the, the the character who stays at home but has that deep source of knowledge about like don't go there because that straight is dangerous because at this time of year, the water goes through it at this ma- this rate. And you would never know that because you're from this other, you know, you sail around, but you don't know this rock or this, you know, this stream. And there's a cost to that knowledge because once you start 
pursuing that knowledge, you're then leaving your people behind and you're becoming something different, which is now making you an outcast. Yeah, I think that's the nerd knowledge, right? <laughs> <That was> <laughs> <a bad day. laughs> I mean, in a way, yeah, it's 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 that moment where we start to realize that there are things in the world that our parents don't know, that maybe our parents are even wrong about some things, or maybe just the adults in general around us don't know everything, and we're starting to learn things that they don't know. Uh, there's that kind of a th- that awakening that we experience as an adolescent. I think is really beautifully captured in this story. Yeah, Ellen, I'm wondering because um, this book was written in an extremely exciting time period in American history, which is the late 60s. And you wrote your book at another exciting, but maybe darker time, which was the late 80s, mid and late 80s in New York City. So that's all the interesting things, but also the AIDS crisis and everything else that's going on. Um, what is it like to be sort of in that ferment and, and creating, you know? You know, there's a way in which... It, you're creating to be in a world where you have the control. I think as a writer, I, there's a big argument about, you know, is it escapism or not? I, I believe very firmly along with Le Guin that you're, you're just weaving your own truths into something. Um, but I do know for me, like I wanted to act and, you know, do all this other stuff. But I realized if I were going to be an actor, I would be entirely dependent on being cast, somebody else's script. And as a writer, you are the director, you're the costumer, you're the lighting designer, and uh, that's real power. So I, to be honest, what I wrote in Swords Point was mostly pre-AIDS because it took some time between when I finished it and when it got published. Uh, It was published in 87, and by then it was in full bloom. But before that, Mm -hmm. I, I only recently realized it, that one of the many, many reasons that it's a kind of a, a charismatic gay world, you know, and also with uh, vain, glorious people like uh, Lord Horn and Michael Godwin, if he's not careful. And then just matter of fact, well, of course, everybody is bisexual or, or gay uh, kind of world that they're living in, is that that was the New York in the early 80s. Mm. I mean, that was the New York <laughs> up until AIDS made it all just terrifying and difficult instead of totally normal. But that was the New York that I lived in. So and it was the, more of a response to the beauty of that than it was a response yeah. to the AIDS crisis. Yeah, the AIDS crisis hadn't really happened when I was creating the book. Mm. Uh, or even by the time I'd finished it, I don't think. Yeah, no, it's very much a, a snapshot of that world. And that sense that the streets are always dangerous uh, was also <laughs> the neighborhood I was living in, which is sure. now a very posh neighborhood. And I tell people these stories of how, you know, you'd walk... Well, you wouldn't even walk down that street. And mm-hmm. God, what, there's a restaurant here now? I wouldn't go on that block before. <laughs> and they just laugh. I mean, they don't really understand that it was true, but it honestly was. It was mm-hmm. a very yeah. crime-ridden uh, yeah. city, and uh, particularly in certain neighborhoods. Right. But it also, the other half, is it made you feel incredibly cool that you could handle it and you lived in that neighborhood. And there's some of that in the uh, my setting of Riverside in the Swords Point books. It's like, yeah, I live here. Yeah, I can do that. Mm. <laughs> now, as you were doing this reread of A Wizard of Earthsea, did you find things in here this time that really stuck out to you as things that you think would be really fun to lift and to either kind of re- re- recast in your own light or? So I did that when I was a teenager, you know, yeah. like I wanted to be on the island and I well, I kind of wanted Ojian to take me in. There's that moment where... um 
where a totally traumatized Ged turns into a hawk, can't change back, and flies to Ojan, uh, flying the wild ride, trusting his instincts. And, <laughs> and Ojan just looks at him and says, I named you once, I think. And that is the most profound moment for me. It's just so emotional. Uh, how you could use that in gaming? I wonder. I wonder. But to be so deeply known, right? As you say, that's that's, yeah. that's profound, right? And yeah. the other, again, the other characters. It's it's again Vetch, who has no reason. He's an upperclassman, but he also knows Ged. By sees him and knows him, and Vetch's little sister sees Ged and knows him in some way that Ged doesn't yet know about himself. And doesn't he? Ged thinks he doesn't want to be known, right? But he does. because right, he's he's that surly emo teenager that you know <laughs> doing that. Yeah. Is there a character from this book that you, if if you had to play? a wizard of Earthsea, either a LARP or if you were at another con where <laughs> you were being forced to play a character in front of an audience, is there a character from this book that you think would be fun to play? You know, I think I'd want to be Ged. Yeah. I've always identified with him. Yeah. How about you, Hoy? Um, I think Vetch. I think Vetch has that sort of, um, he doesn't say a lot, but he's just very kind of sure in himself. Uh, in a different way that Ogyan is, because he, he, when you're looking at it, oh wait, here's a, a black character in the late '60s. It's not you know, it's not one to one, but he's he's prosperous. He's sort of the you know, he's from a prosperous, well-educated family. He's sort of the becomes sort of the patriarch of the family now. Um, he comes from this whole different world and get it's very comfortable, but he also is still so compassionate. He doesn't like you know flaunt it in a way, or he's not insecure about it in the way that Jasper is. Yeah. Um, so I think he would be a fun character to examine. I would love to see a parallel story. And I think, I think it's pretty interesting that Le Guin says, you know, because this is a chronicle telling of Geds and that we never hear that Vetch's story. Only, the, only we know this thing that Vetch did for, with Ged. Okay, but it, see, I have to challenge you on that then because Vetch, I have to say, is my favorite character, but he's not a conflict character. How right. could you, what would you do other than, you know, sort of try to be helpful? I guess that's the the... the depending on what, what you're doing, right? So if you're playing in sort of more traditional D&D, then you have a party and you have roles. And so there are support characters, people who are making sure that the party as a whole survives as opposed to I'm shining. But if it's, as you're saying, if you want to be the lead character, then Vetch is no way ever going to be a lead character. He can't, he can't be, right? Unless someone writes a whole other fan fiction series about him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, see, to me and to me as a writer and possibly as a game designer, there's always that question of what's uh, a friend of mine once said a, a wonderful writing exercise is think of a character, think of the one thing they would never do, and then write the story in which they do it. Right. So what would push what would push Vetch beyond who he is? Um, and would you want to do that? Right. I mean, it would have to be something that would be a threat to his community or his family. And then he would do something that would be disproportionate um, in response because it felt so threatening, but it would never be something that personally threatened him. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about our um, opinions about Ursula K. Le Guin's lack of interesting female characters and the, um, the way in which women's magic is not as strong as men's magic. But I, I, I really don't think we've properly highlighted just how incredibly cool and even radical it was that we really don't have white characters in this story. Basically, everybody is a person of color, except in the very beginning, the tribe of barbarians who are attacking them are light-skinned and blonde-haired, the Kargs. But like 
the, the as far as I know, those are the only like kind of traditionally like kind of Caucasian sounding characters that I was aware of. What about the witchy, the witchy, um, right. She's half. Carg. Oh, you're yeah. right. She's, you're pale. Right. she's very pale. Right. She's half yes. card or something like that. Yeah. That's she's bad right. too, She's though. very pale. Yeah. Right. Right. She is. But the default in this world is not white. White is very much the, um, it, not only is it, uh, not the default, but it's not, it's not, not the default in the way that when you read like an A merit story, you may be in like, you know, some savage wilderness, but then we find like some like white skinned, you know, beauty who turns out to have some like secret, like Caucasian blood because of like something that happened hundreds of years ago. So now we're just like fetishizing the, the white skin. That's not what's happening here. No. Like right here, the heroes are all people of color. And you I know she did that on purpose. I mean, you were talking about oh, the, the yeah. turmoil of the 60s, and I'm sure mm. that that was, that that was something right. deliberate. And people miss it, too. Oh, yeah. You don't really notice it when you're reading, or at least you don't when you're, you know, 14. Uh, but it's there. And the original cover of the original hardcover was this beautiful sort of woodcut, hard-lined illustration with this beautiful red-brown face. Um, well, you know, Le Guin's uh, father was a famous anthropologist, and he and her mother were very, very involved in the last members of the California Native tribes and getting their stories and all of that wow. stuff. So she grew up with, you know, the remnants of the California tribes wandering through her house. And so I think in some ways, just because Getty is red-brown on that particular cover, I always thought of him as being um, Native American Mm-hmm. Right. I think, um, again, she's not so um, unsettled as to do sort of one-to-one correlations. Oh, this talks about the plight of, uh, it's just it's just there. It's not exoticized. There are yes. other things that are exotic in the world, but it's not, any culture is not exotic to itself in any scene in here, as, as well, I recall. She does, she does something that actually that another writer I can warmly recommend, oh my God, for world building, you should really do a, do a, a segment on her, is a Lori J. Marks. The um, the I guess the four elements or something the logic there's earth logic air logic water logic and fire logic okay. I may have them out of order but it's incredible world and what she does is what Le Guin does too which is and and what I do which is you just normalize this uh, slightly revolutionary thing you know in Swords Point everybody's bi or gay more or less and in um, Laurie Marks sort of the same thing but much earthier. It's really, they're remarkable books. And Le Guin is normalizing being brown, which mm-hmm. really was not a thing in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Not at all. And very few examples of it leading up to that. Sure, we had Eric John Stark um, with the Lee Brackett stories, uh, but that was also another example of, like, you never saw him portrayed that way in the artwork. Eric John Stark was always like a strapping, blonde hair, blue-eyed man. But you read the books and he's dark-skinned. But it's interesting because um, it's the same thing that happened in the Hunger Games. When they made the Hunger Games into the movies, there was all of this um, all of this upset because they cast a black girl as... I'm forgetting the name of that Prue. character. Prue. Yes, thank you. I remember when people were getting all upset about this. I'm like, did you read the same book I did? Because it seemed pretty clear she was a black character in the book. Like maybe you decided to change that in your head and now you're mad that that's not who you imagined. Right. But that's what I read. Right. If you do a close reading also, it could be that Katniss might also even be Native American because she's described as being dark and, and with dark hair. 
uh, which also, <laughs> you know, cast a blonde and blue eyed. She was a great actress, but Jennifer Lawrence. But um, I wonder, uh, Ellen, you talked about normalizing. And um, is that enough for some people are saying no? And we have to go beyond that and go into sort of advocacy. And is that sort of like a problem for fiction, you know, to say that, you know, things have to be, you know, as, you know, as opposed to just normalizing, you know? Yeah. I mean, everybody's got to do it their own way. And uh, I, I've now, you know, seen enough eras of of modern fantasy, which really started after Tolkien, um, to have watched stuff come and go. I mean, it was a big de- birth control in fantasy was a huge deal that suddenly you could have all of these, you know, feminist heroes because they weren't going to get pregnant. Um, and but of course, it was a pre-industrial society. So there's always worry, not tea. And I thought this was kind of funny and disingenuous, but, you know, it it made it possible for a pre-industrial society to also be the society of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think, but every time you do something new and different, you know, we all have our ways of engaging with it as artists and as human beings. And some writers just want to jump up and down and yell, and other people just want to pretend it isn't happening or just kind of let their own truth speak through the through the story. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's time for us to start wrapping things up. I'm curious, Ellen, do you have any kind of last thing that you really wanted to chat about or any final thoughts on a Wizard of Earthsea that you want to share? Oh, my goodness. I, I feel that I have taken more than my expected time of yattering and storytelling and having opinions. Um, I'll think of something later, but when it's too late. But for now, no, I'm good. <laughs> That's pretty desk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And Ellen, I also want to ask you, Hoy and I had so much fun reading Swords Point. If we were to do, not, I'm, not, I'm going to get rid of the word if. When we do our next episode that's covering an Ellen Kushner book, what, what book should it be? What should we read and cover next? Well, sadly, all the other books except one are in the Swords Point continuum. Uh, I think, of course, you should read and enjoy them all. You know what? The... Um, the Fall of the Kings takes place a whole generation after Sword's Point and does have possible actual magic in it because Delia kind of wanted it in there, even though I was <laughs> fighting it. And we sort of compromised by saying, well, it could be real or it could be delusion. And different readers have said the same. You know, some readers come down very hard on, oh, no, it was obviously real. And other people are like, well, it's clearly illusion. So you could maybe have some fun with that. But for for straight up, magic and sort of kind of world building, no fault world building, my book, Thomas the Rhymer, is set entirely in the world of um, kind of Scottish border folklore. I didn't make anything up. But if you don't know that, you think I've got this incredible imagination and came up with all this cool <laughs> stuff. And people have said that, like, wow, how'd you think of that? Like that river of blood that flows between the worlds. Oh, that was amazing. But yeah, no, it's in the ballad. But well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, Ellen, do you have any, uh, is there a, uh, since we haven't read the rest of it, is there a uh, Jewish analog in there later on or something like that? You know, I have come to realize that the whole thing is really Jewish um, in in strange and personal ways. Although every now and then I will throw in a Jewish name just to mess with your head. And because partly Swords Point is also um, based on Damon Runyon. Sure. Guys and okay. dolls. Right. So I I need it to be a big mishmash. It isn't just one thing. Which is what Dungeons and Dragons is too. It's just a big mishmash of all kinds of stuff. So Yay. love it. <laughs> 
All right. So Ellen, what are some things that you're working on right now or projects you would like our listeners to be aware of? Well, just recently, they did a re-edition of a kid's book that I wrote, which was, again, kind of subversive. I, I originally did it with musicians as a stage show, and it's called. it was originally called The Klezmer Nutcracker, and it's the Nutcracker story and music told as a Hanukkah story instead. And we just, instead of Clara, she's Sarah. Instead of Uncle Drosselmeyer, it's Tanta Miriam. And it came out as a book a few years later, and it didn't really do much. But now it's out again, and I think the world is ready for it because it's getting rave reviews. I think people are just more up for multiculturalism. It's not a niche book anymore. So it's called The Golden Dreidel uh, by me. And just today I read like the best review in School Library Journal where somebody finally got what I was trying to do with that book. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm also working on uh, another Swords Point um, book, which is, you know, they're all written out of order. Don't read them in the order they were published. Read them in the order I tell you to. So... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's about Alex Bastard, daughter, the angriest teenager in the world. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I love it. And where can folks fo- find you online? EllenKushner.com. It's spelled the same way as Trump's relatives, but I am absolutely no relation. <laughs> <laughs> and Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Uh, if you uh, like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And you can drop us a note at appendixandbookclub at gmail.com with any feedback you have. And we're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? So our patrons are able to join us before we record these episodes and have a discussion with us about the books that we're discussing. And this week, we were blessed to have had eight patrons join us for this. So we broke up into two different groups. And um, the patrons who joined us this week were Robbie Fioto, Robert Coleman, Brandon Cruz, Rick Byrne, Kurt Hockenberry, Oliver Brackenberry, Damo Saklas, and Adam Stiers. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. Thank you to Vasily Kalaman, Andrew Sternick, Richard, Richard Rain, Richard Ruwain, Joe England. Matt Richards, and Richard Reed. Thank you all so much for your support. Now, another thing our patrons get to do is they get to vote on and choose which books we're covering. So I also want to say um, that our, our the votes are in for episode 116. Our patrons have decided that we are covering Ursula K. Le Guin's The Tombs of Atuan. <laughs> so we are continuing with the series on episode 116. Now, for episode 119, we're going to be releasing the poll when this episode drops. So because Hoy always has a cool theme for his, and I haven't been doing themes for my for my choices, I, I caved in. I have a theme for this one. So the theme for the books that we're going to be covering, that we're going to be voting on for episode 119 is Missing Memories. Mm. So the books that are up for vote are Octavia E. Butler's Fledgling, Roger Zelazny's The Courts of Chaos, P.C. Hodgell's Godstock, and Richard Morgan's Altered Carbon. Those are the four books that our patrons can vote on for us to cover for episode 119. That is fantastic. Oh, my God. I forgot. So, like, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There you go. (laughs) And I have a Substack. (laughs) (laughs) And all just your name? Oh, Ellen Kushner. And all that information is available on that Yield Antique website, which is ellenkushner.com. 
Perfect. Ellen, thank you for being on the show. Can thank I come back? So- this is please, great. Please. You, you guys are amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we would love to have you back so much. That would be amazing. All right, everybody. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Ellen, we definitely will have you back. See you in the stacks, everybody. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>